Well, let us now turn in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sang to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia, then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone, till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made, for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is always a fearsome thing to take into our hands the word of the living God, the errant and inspired word of God. And Lord, how much more so this great and magnificent song of Moses, perhaps a high point of praise and worship in the Old Testament and among them for all time. Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would not leave here unchanged by these words, that we would understand them, we recognize them, and you would bring us to the place that you brought your people as they considered your great works. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So here we are in Exodus chapter 15, the great song of Moses, this celebration and commemoration of the events of the previous chapter in which the Lord did as he said he was going to do and rescued his people and destroyed Pharaoh and his army once and for all. Not, of course, without warning. How many times did he give Pharaoh warning? Many times. And God was very, very just and indeed very patient even, long-suffering before he brought this great work of destruction. And we should remind ourselves that had they been content simply with the loss of the nation of Israel from their midst, that would have been the end of it. But no Pharaoh in his pride had to go after them with his whole army bent on destroying them. The Lord saved them. The Lord redeemed his people. And we have as a result of this great work, this this remembrance, this memorial in song. And it is indeed the oldest psalm or hymn that we have any record of, with a possible exception of Lamech's terrible boast that's recorded in Genesis chapter 4, but it's not worthy of repetition. It is, this song of Moses is one of the most impressive compositions that we have in all of Scripture, and we cannot really dwell on the, the beauty of its poetry, but it is amazing, and no doubt as your eyes cast upon it in the midst of this sermon, you'll see some of that beauty. But let me just say, it is not merely a, a remembrance of the past, it's also foretelling the future. I don't know if you noticed that. So they're, all, they're, they're commemorating the glorious acts of God already in, the, in this thing that has just happened, and the, you know, the bodies and the armor and the chariots are washing up on the shore as they're speaking. But it's also looking forward to the future. So it says in verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. Who are they talking about? The people of Canaan, where they're going into, the promised land. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia, and the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, and the mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. Well, that's actually true. That is absolutely true. The word of this was going to reach the rest of the inhabited world soon enough. And we will have reports as time goes on of how it is that the people had already heard of these things. My friends, if, they, if, if Philistia's heard of it, if the chiefs of Edom heard of it, then surely God's people need to hear of it and be reminded of it. And let me say, it's not just a commemoration of the events that day, which then had implications for the future and the, and the nation of Israel. It is, and not merely is it the oldest song that we have, it's a song that carries on in eternity. Because we have, don't we, remember uh, a version of these things in Revelation 15. Revelation 15, too. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, this is the people of God, over his image and his mark. This is the, the church of God. Standing over a sea of glass, having harps of God, and they sing what? The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. These two things become combined. The great redemption of Moses in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, and also the redemption of Christ in the New. They become commingled into this new song that is both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. 
And that, by the way, helps us. Very often we go to the New Testament, we find some clue to help us understand and interpret the Old, and much of this is pretty straightforward anyways, but looking at those things, we see the commonalities and we recognize the common threads, and we say, this is, this is the crux of the issue. It's about God's glory. It's all about God's glory that is manifested in His works, His great works of redemption, which, of course, not coincidentally, result in the salvation of His people. We have absolutely every reason to worship the living God, merely in who he is himself. He is supremely glorious. But moreover, he has done these great works in redemptive history, which we celebrate. And by the way, these things are, we would be, it would be well worth our while for any pagan to glorify the living God in singing the song of Moses, because he's a glorious God. But how much more so, God's own people, because this is us, this is our salvation, Word of God says it was we who passed through that sea. We are united as a people of God. And it is we who have been redeemed. And we sing this song of Moses and of the Lamb. Well, now having spent the last 11 months to this point in the book of Exodus, we now get to reflect on that which we previously looked forward to, the great work of redemption in the Red Sea and this great victory. So the song of Moses, that's our title tonight. Children, Song of Moses with these four points. They all begin with the Lord, so you don't have to write that four times. The Lord has triumphed gloriously, triumphs over men, triumphs over gods, and redeems his people. So first, the Lord has triumphed gloriously. In verse 1, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord. And we must stop right there. It seems like an obvious point, but in con- this is in contrast to the song of Lamech, which was in praise of himself. And we know that there are songs, aren't there? All you have to do is turn on popular radio, and you will find songs that are about themselves. Well, no, this song is in praise of the living God. And this is what music was made for. This is what, by the way, we were made for. Right? This is what God created us to do, to worship the living God with our mouths. Jonathan Edwards said it wonderfully well. God has made all things for himself. He has created them for his glory, but more especially those creatures that he's endured with understanding as he has done the souls of men, right? So all creatures, including insects and all the rest of it, are for God's glory, but more particularly, we who can understand things, the things that God has done. And it is by them that God has his glory from all his creatures, as they are the eye of the creation to behold the glory of God manifested in the other creatures and the mouth of creation to praise him and ascribe to him the glory that is displayed in them. God glorifies himself in his works that are manifest in the irrational and inanimate creation in the view of his rational creatures that he has made capable of beholding and admiring them, of adoring, loving, and praising him for. Isn't that wonderful? I think it's absolutely true. God has made the inanimate universe, all those galaxies and all of those solar systems and all the rest of these things. God has made these things that we might behold them, and then to do what? To open our mouths and to praise our glorious God. That's our job. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to find yourself. You don't have to climb some mountain in the Himalayas and find what's the purpose of life. There you have it. To behold God's glorious works 
and to praise him for it. That's your job in life and in all of eternity. And so this thing, I will sing to the Lord, is the object of the praise. I will sing to the Lord, moreover, for he has triumphed gloriously. That's the thing. You know, God is supremely glorious, and all of his actions are therefore glorious. You know, God never loses. He has the victory, but he does so when he wins. He wins with great glory. He doesn't just do it. It wasn't a kind of almost even contest. You didn't know who was going to win. There was the angel of the Lord fighting for them, and he was taking hits, and half of people's God, God's people were, were being wiped out, and all, at the end, just barely, they overcome him, overcame Pharaoh's people, and most of them left and, you know, all the rest. It wasn't like that. The score was two million to zero, right? And, and not a single one of Pharaoh's army survived in the slightest. And it wasn't even an injury. No one even stubbed their toe walking through the, the middle of the, the Red Sea. It was two million to zero with no losses, no injuries, no, no outs, nothing. It's a glorious triumph. Because that's the way God does things, gloriously. Right? He doesn't just get them done. Sometimes we are very thankful merely to get something done. We're struggling to get a check in the box some days. God does everything gloriously, supremely, sublimely wonderfully. And so he has done in this triumph. More specifically, he says the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. No man could do that. You can win, you can, you can put an arrow in a man and even a horse, but you can't pick up the horse and his rider and throw him into the sea, but God can, and God did do that. Now let me just say that our praise should be like this. This is a good pattern, sort of like the, uh, the Lord's Prayer is our pattern for how we should pray. We can think of this Song of Moses as a pattern for how we should praise. And we are moving in and out between the generalities you know, God is glorious and he's triumphed gloriously to the specifics that feed those things. So we're not just having these things in the air without the supporting evidence. We're coming back to the concrete actions and deeds that he has done. In this case, his, the horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea, which then build up again the general picture. But neither do we want the evidence, the, the raw material, to be without a label. We want to move back and forth between these things in our praise, whether, we're, whether we are uh, praying ourselves or the hymns that we select to sing or the hymns that we compose, um, because God's people have, have always done that. We move in and out between the specifics and the generalities. The horse and its rider he's thrown in the sea. Now, anyways, this beginning line that I've mentioned is something like a chorus. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Because in any case, it's then sung by Miriam and the women in verse 20. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with trembles and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, they may well have carried on with the rest of it, but God, in his wisdom, only has given us this first line. Maybe that's all that they sung. We don't know. But the point is that the rest of the song could well be summarized by this line. And friends, again, we have to learn how to do that. It's, it's going to be hard for us to sing all of Scripture, just like it's, it's impossible for us to learn every, every, the, the teaching Intellectually, of all of Scripture, that's why we have a, a confession and a catechism to summarize all those things. 
we also have psalms and hymns that summarize the glorious praise that we need to bring to God. And even in this long song of Moses, if I ask you, so what's it about? Tell me about it. Well, if you remember even this first line, this first verse, you have the, the crux of it and, and a handle by which you can pick up and carry the rest of it. So the Lord truly has triumphed gloriously. And secondly, the Lord triumphs over men. How so that the Lord has triumphed gloriously? What are we thinking about in these things? Well, he's triumphed over men. Verse 3, first of all, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, we understand that he's not a man, but the point is that he is a warrior. He resembles man in that way and being a, not just uh, he's, he's not in the rear with the gear he's not doing administrative tasks he is a warrior and a warrior hero at that now friends that is one of the attributes that the contemporary man and I would say can the contemporary church cares the least about really not even sometimes ignoring it and sometimes going as far as to reject it you will have people who absolutely reject portions great portions of the old testament saying god's not like that yes he is oh yes he is he describes himself as a warrior absolutely he does and you know what the issue is not whether war itself will happen because we know that wars will happen until the end wars and rumors of wars there is war And there shall be war until the Lord returns, because not just war in the world, but mainly between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That warfare, friends, there's no truce, there's no end to it until the Lord comes back and and wins the final victory. There is warfare. The only question is, are you going to be involved in it, and how well are you going to do it? Well, the Lord's involved in that warfare, and he does it wonderfully well. He's really good at it. Okay. Again, among... Warriors, uh, they would not have been terribly impressed by my ribbons. Respectable, but not the sort of things that the great heroes have, okay? And they, we judge one another by looking at those things and say, okay, he's been there or he hasn't been. He's done that. Friends, the Lord God, the Lord God has triumphed in every way that is imaginable, every conflict, every, every battle that there's ever been. There's not enough rows to cover all the victories that he has. Every conflict that has ever been, he has been there and he has triumphed gloriously. Because he is this great warrior king of his people. Now friends, we need that. We need such warriors. Israel certainly needed one in this day. Here they are, this poor, weak group of slaves, and they're trying to get out of this land that was, uh, it was like, you, you know, this superpower of an army that was running roughshod over them. They desperately needed a good warrior to fight their way out, and so they found one. The greatest warrior of all time. And here again are the specifics of how the Lord has triumphed over men as the man of war. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He's speaking of Pharaoh himself as a man. And he's saying, I beat him. Pharaoh's chariots and his army I have cast into the sea. His chosen captains, also men, are are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. 
And also in verse 8, And the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together, the flood stood upright like a heap, the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Now listen to this. Listen to the way that he is explaining the things that have arisen in the heart of Pharaoh. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. That's that's the thought of Pharaoh. And he's not making that up. The infinite God who knows all things knows the heart of his enemy and knows the prideful thoughts that have arisen in his heart, maybe even the words that have come from his mouth. He says, I will pursue and I will overtake. He's already planning on dividing the spoil. That's not what happened. Rather, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Empty, boastful thoughts and words of God's enemy because he... The Lord triumphed over this man, Pharaoh. In the evaluation of these things in verse 6, verse six, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who arose against you. You sent forth your wrath and consumed them like stubble. This is God's triumph over men. Specific, yes, in the case of Pharaoh, but more generally, all those who oppose the living God, this is what's going to happen to them. That's why I find it so unbelievable and so strange and crazy that, that anyone would seek to, to carry on apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Would anyone would ever seek to live this life as an enemy of the living God? It makes no sense to me. It must be that somehow they don't understand that they can't possibly win against the living God. I hope that they, if there's anyone that has any thought like that in their mind whatsoever listening to this, I pray that you'd consider what happened to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and how God so easily crushed him, so easily triumphed over him. And so he shall do to all who are his enemy. So the Lord has triumphed gloriously. He has triumphed over men, but moreover, he has triumphed over gods. That's our third point triumphed over gods. You recall the words, maybe, it's been, I know, a few months, but you recall the words of Pharaoh in Exodus 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. That's been the narrative. That's been the, the crux of the issue, that, God, that Pharaoh has his own gods. In fact, he thinks himself as being divine. You can go to the British Museum and see all their gods, right? The, the dog god and the cat god and all the rest of them. And he said, I don't know this Lord God you're talking about. I don't have a priest for him on my payroll. And the Lord says, okay, you're going to find out. You will soon find out who the living God is. And so it has been the refrain of Exodus, uh, in Exodus 7, 5, for instance. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. They have their gods, and they imagine their gods are going to save them, and their gods are going to give them victory, and more particularly, that Pharaoh is looking to his gods to provide him the victory, again, thinking of himself as divine as well. But I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to triumph over all of their false gods. Exodus 12, 12. You you remember this. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You see? 
He's going to execute judgment not only in the people, but also the gods. Now, does that mean that there really were gods? No. There's only one true God, that's the Lord. But there are those who they've set up as gods, very often with connections with the occult, with demons. And these things, these, these statues, these idols that they've set up and made a cult and they've worshipped, they've set them up as gods. And the question is, will they stand? Will they help those who worship them? The answer is no. God is going to crush the gods as well as the men who rise up in opposition. You remember that very funny story, you know, uh, of uh, the, the, the Philistines capture the ark. And they bring the ark into the temple of Dagon, their god. And they wake up the next morning, there Dagon has fallen down on his face before Dagon. They prop him back up like this, this false god. And, you know, they, they go away, and the next day he's fallen, and he's broken in pieces. His hands, his feet are broken off. And they say, we've got to get the ark out of here, because the hand of the Lord has been very rough, very harsh upon our god, Dagon, as well as ourselves. Well, friends, again, that's the thing. You set yourself up or you set anything up as a false god against a living god and you will, you will find out soon enough who is the real god because the Lord will triumph over all the false gods of Egypt and over all the false gods that have ever been imagined in the wicked hearts of men. And so we have in our chapter in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Because that's the question. Here in the beginning, Pharaoh is saying, I don't even think your God is comparable. I don't even think he's in the same group as my gods. But the reality is that there is no other one in this group. He is the only one. Who like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Can your God do that? The answer is no. Your God can't do that. Only the one true living God can do such things. And this was the Lord's great triumph over all the false gods. For all we know, they, we certainly know that they carried images in various ways into battle. Maybe they, they brought their priest with them. Maybe they brought their images, with, uh, their, their actual statuettes with them. They certainly had their amulets and all the rest of them. And they ended up where? In the bottom of the Red Sea, drowned along with their owners. Because God triumphed over them. So God triumphed. The Lord triumphs not only over men, but also over the false gods. And fourthly and finally, we see that the Lord redeems his people. In verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. As I said, at the risk of being a broken CD... Even that's archaic now, isn't it? At the risk of of being a skipping CD or broken record, there is no salvation apart from judgment, and there's no judgment apart from salvation. As we record, this great work of God's victory is not an empty victory, it's not a pyrrhic victory, it's not a fruitless victory. It was a necessary victory, and the fruit of it is the redemption and salvation of his people. That's the beautiful thing of it. That's where it applies to us. Because this is his redemption of us. He has become our salvation. In verse verse 13, you and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. You've redeemed them. And you say, what is the redemption here? What, What are we talking about? 
Well, in some sense, we, we can speak of the, uh, the Passover. This is the, the work showing us the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to redeem us. But it is actually, pr- the, the more proximate thing is actually the victory over the, the enemy here. It was the death of this army that brought the salvation and life of God's people. And he redeemed them at the cost, indeed, of those who were drowned in the Red Sea. Now we see that there was no way that they could carry on, that no way they could escape, no way they could live apart from this great victory that has happened. And so the Lord, whom you, the people whom you've redeemed, you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Well, let's remind ourselves again that this is what Exodus is all about. Exodus 3, 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So uh, this is the compassion of our Lord. He knows it. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. That's what he wants to do. So long as the hands of the Egyptians are there and active, they are going to do his people harm. So he's going to break the hands of the Egyptians. And he's going to redeem the people. To bring them up from that land to a good and large land. To a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites. And the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And let's remind ourselves again that all this. It's hugely significant in its own. But it points, it points beyond itself to the larger situation of the warfare between Christ and Satan. And Pharaoh represents Satan. And all of us, this is our situation. Naturally speaking, we are slaves. We are enslaved to Satan and to sin. We, we can do no other. We're, we're, we're slaves. And God comes and redeems us from that. God comes and saves us from that. He pays at his own price, you see, at his own cost. He bears whatever cost, whatever needs to be done, he does it. Whatever work, whatever sacrifice, whatever cost, whatever victory needs to be won, he's willing to do it all. He's getting his hands dirty throughout the whole process in order to redeem us, you and I. Is it worth it? Friends, even on, our, on the clear light of day as we look at ourselves and say, I don't know if it really is. We look at Peter and say, is it really? Is that the one, the sort of one that the Lord has gone to all this trouble for? We look at ourselves and we say the same thing. But friends, it is to him. It's worth it to him. And that's the only thing that matters. In fact, it's precisely because of all this investment of redemption that makes us so worthwhile. Right? We weren't much. We weren't anything. Yes, we were made in the image of God. That's very true. And nothing can efface that. But we're fallen. We're sinners. We're enemies. We have no merit. We can't save ourselves. Everything we do only makes it worse. And God comes and he invests this great work of redemption in us. He says, yeah, I'm going to redeem you. And if it means the death of a lamb or a few lambs, or hundreds of thousands of lambs, and, and I'll do it. If it means the death of Pharaoh and of his entire army, I'll do it. If it means the death of my own son, whom I love, I will do it. Because he decided 
In his love from all eternity, he decided that we were worth it. And in the investment of these tremendous things, friends, we may not have begun as worth it, but we certainly are now. Having received these great riches of redemption, of all this blood, of all this work, of all this redemption, we are of great value now. The Lord redeems his people, and God has done this, and we must not forget it. You know, that's our problem. We're continually on the brink of forgetting what God has done for us, and we must not. You know, that becomes, intimately, that becomes the story later on, is that the people of God, Israel, they tend to forget what God has done for them. And so this is the lament in Psalm 106, starting in verse 7. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitudes of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up, so he led them to the depths as to the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of those who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words and sang his praise. That's the stage we're at now. They believed his words at long last, and they sang his praise. But it goes on to say this in verse 13. They soon forgot his works, and they did not wait for his counsel. They soon forgot. This is the purpose of this. What's the purpose of this exercise, this thing that we do twice on the Lord's day? For some, yes, it is calling to salvation. The, the, the Son of God who has come, he's taken on human flesh, he's come as the good shepherd and he is seeking the lost and he's calling to, to you and bringing through his voice, bringing into his church. But continually and all for the rest of us, as long as we remain, he is reminding us of what he has done for us. Yes, in some sense, he's doing new things in our private lives. But as the great works of redemption, there's nothing new there. It is rather a reminder of, re- of what he has already done. And these things must continually be before our mind. It is a source of everything for us. The Lord redeems his people, and we must not forget it. Well, to apply these things, we have just two applications, just two The first one, again, this is in the context of us setting out in a new year, 2017. What what might we take from this? What might I have for you, desire for you? First of all, to grow in faith. Grow in faith. Because this recollection, this memorial in song and in poetry to what God has done is so that you might trust the living and true God. He's pointing out, look, this is what faith in those false gods have done for them, nothing. And here's what faith, however trembling, however halting, however incomplete in the living and true God did for these people. It saved them gloriously. They're redeemed. It's so that you might trust the living and true God. It's like the Gospel of John. He gets done with this whole Gospel. And you understand in in the whole midst of it, it, it just seems like he... He can barely say all that he wants to say. He's speaking in the greatest possible economy. But there's always so much more there. We can barely unpack it. It's huge. It just expands like a mushroom cloud when you're trying to preach it. And he says, you know what this is all for? That you might believe in the Son of God. 
That's what it was for. That you might believe. He did a lot of other things. I'm not done. I, I, never, I could never finish this task of writing all these things done. Down. And the world itself could not contain all the books. But I've written these things that you might believe. Moses has written these things that you might believe. That you might trust in the one true and living God. You should grow in your faith in that way this year. Join, of course, with his people in faith. You know, because the issue here at the the shore of the Red Sea was not which one of these people is, is stronger or better trained than the other. The people of Israel did not even pick up a weapon. They didn't even need to throw a stone at the army behind them. And the issue even was not which nation was more worthy of salvation. As I mentioned, the Israelites demonstrated their unworthiness on many, many occasions. The issue was simply this. Who has got the infinite God, the creator of the universe, on their side? Which one? And the answer is the covenant people of God, children of Israel. Who wouldn't want to be a part of it? And friends, this is your invitation to do so. It used to be a little bit harder, actually, to join the covenant people of God before the time of Christ. It was, it was not impossible. It was just very rare and very hard to do so. But now it's, it's wonderfully easy. You are grafted on to this people, this covenant people, through faith in Christ. Romans 4.16 Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, meaning the the Jews, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. This is Abraham himself on the same basis by which he was, was made righteous in the sight of God. His faith had done it, and so it is with us. Through our faith in Christ, we are brought into this people. And that's the purpose of Exodus, the purpose of Deuteronomy, the purpose of John, the purpose of Revelation, all of these things. And let me say that as we, we come to him in faith, we remember these things and we grow in these faith, uh, that this is a continual process. Any, any amount of faith will save us, but God wants us to grow in that. Coming to be a Christian in the first place is certainly an act of trust, but we need to grow in our trust of the living God, even as the people of Israel did. You know, 2 Corinthians 1, 9 says this, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a, do- a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Is that, are those words to live this next year by, I hope? We should not trust in ourselves, but God who raises the dead. Grow in your trust. Grow in your faith. Secondly, we should grow as worshipers. These two things are, of course, closely related. But we should grow as worshipers. Matthew Henry says, note, our continued endeavor should be by praising his name and serving his interest to exalt God. And it is an advancement to us to be so employed. Meaning this is a high calling indeed. That This is our constant endeavor to praise his name and serve his interest. This is our job as worshipers, as I mentioned. Now, how are we going to grow as worshipers? Well, we've got to grow in our knowledge of God. Simple as that. Right? Why are we so obsessed with conferences and books and podcasts and seminaries and all the rest of these? Why? Because it's all about the knowledge of God. You can't come to faith in a God you don't know anything about. And you cannot praise rightly a God whom you know almost nothing about. You must grow in your knowledge. And that's an implicit application each and every sermon. Sometimes people say, well, what practical benefit is it? 
You know, give me a practical application. What practical benefit is it that I know about the aseity of God or that Christ has two wills rather than one? Let me say there are practical benefits to it. Every aspect of the true, knowledge, the true orthodoxy, the true system of faith has practical application. But to ask the question along those lines is, is sort of to make God the servant of man, right? To say, what good does knowing something about the God who made me, what does it do for me? Does it make me richer? Does it make me, what does it do for me? Does it help me to, to go through the mechanics of my day? Well, that's, that's the wrong way around. That's, that's not what we're, that's not it. Okay, that is completely the other way. We are created to glorify the living God through our knowledge of him who is supremely glorious. The use of this information is that so you can worship him better, more accurately, more beautifully. That's the use of it. So how well do you know the attributes of God? How well do you know the works of God in redemptive history? Do you know this song of Moses? How well do you know the words of God in Scripture? Now, learning psalms and good hymns by heart is one way. It's a beautiful way. Isn't it great that we can, we can in song, memorize sometimes things that we'd never be able to memorize otherwise? God has given us these things to his people. We should grow in them. And this is secondary, I recognize But it's not insignificant. We should grow in our ability to worship in terms of singing. Yes, singing. You know, Moses, this man who when he was 40, just in essence killed a man with his bare hand and lived his 40 years in the wilderness, now come back as an 80-year-old, wielding this great power over over the people and even over Egypt. You know what he was doing? Oh, Superman or Macho Man that might be out there. He was singing, singing, okay? I don't know why we think that, that singing is, is something for women to do and not for men. That's not, that's not God's idea at all. Actually, it's Moses who sings first and Miriam and the women after that. God expects his men to worship. And I hope that we would be characterized by our growing in these things. And we never ever get to the point of just saying, well, I'm just not good at singing. No, let others do it for me. No, that's not God's, I don't think that's the way for anything in life. We are continually getting better at all the things that God has called us to, or we should be. And we'll certainly be doing that in eternity. You know, I mentioned it before, going to Banner of Truth is amazing to me, just how, how beautiful the singing is there. Right? It's, it's a minister's conference. Beautiful singing. 200 men singing wonderfully. And the question is, how did that happen? Is it only those who are somehow musically gifted that, that God ever calls to, to be ministers? No. No, 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 no. They're, it's the general population. They're just as mixed in native ability as anyone else. But rather, and their understanding and their desire over time, both to be worshipers and leaders of God's people in worship, God enables them to be better. No shame in that. You might have no, zero native ability. God can bless. You know, Moses wasn't even that great of a speaker, but God opened his mouth, right? He, was, he said, I'll be with you. The power of the Holy Spirit was upon him. And you say, well, Moses had the Holy Spirit helping him to sing. Yes, exactly. That's right. And so can you. You should pray that God would enable you to sing more and more beautifully in accordance with a beautiful, infinite God that you worship. And I, I think about this. You know, what, what is my desire for this church? 
that we, we grow as a worshiping community. That's, so, that's the, the thing. That's the end product. In, in heaven, that's what we have. This wonderfully, gloriously perfected church that is singing the praises of the living God. And we want to add to our number, absolutely. We want to add to our knowledge. We want to add to our ability in our heart and head and in every other way in our mouths to worship our glorious King. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, truly Lord, we are not the worshipers that we should be. Some of us are not worshipers in truth at all. We remain outside the camp. That we pray, Lord, that they would hear this song of Moses, recount the, this great victory. And, Lord, that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would make it real and open their eyes in order that they might see these things and repent and turn to Christ in faith and join the worshiping community. Now we pray for the rest of us, Lord, that we would consider your glorious triumphs, triumphing over man, over false gods, and redeeming us in the process. And Lord, that we would be very thankful, and our hearts would be filled with worship, and that you'd put the right words into our mouths to go along with a heart that desires to worship. And indeed, that you'd bless even our lips as we give praise to your name. We know, Lord, that the Father is seeking such to worship him, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, in some sense, that is what this great work is all about, to secure worshipers for you and a bride for your son. Well, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to grow in these things and that we never, ever forget the song of Moses. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.